There's a movie called Meet the Parents. Uh, ben Stiller plays a guy named Greg, and Greg is in love with his girlfriend. He wants to make her his wife, uh, but he's got to go home and meet her family first. And he intends, while he's there, to ask her father for his daughter's hand in marriage. But then everything that could possibly go wrong begins to go wrong. And, and one of the reasons things go badly is because her father, played by Robert De Niro, he's got it out for Greg from the very start. And so even early on in the movie, the father, as they sit down for dinner, the dad asks Greg to pray for the meal, uh, even though Greg is Jewish, and, and really he's not devout Jew, um, he's not devout at all, but he's so desperate to impress the family that he agrees to lead them in prayer. And he begins to pray this very jumbled and infantile prayer. Uh, if, you, if you remember it, he's, he, you know, he, can't, he doesn't even know how to make his fingers, you know, how to do it. He's, and he says, oh God, you're such a good God. You know, and it just, it gets worse from there. And as, the, as he's praying, each person in the family takes turns kind of opening an eye to look at him like, what in the world? are you talking about? Um, and it's really a very funny scene, but it's also poignant um, because it shows something that's true for, I know, for a lot of us, maybe most of us. Most people don't like to pray in public. Most of us don't want to pray out loud when there are other people around. We pray just fine in private when it's just me and God, but I would never volunteer to pray in front of other people because then it's going to leave me totally exposed. And so maybe this is you. I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to look spiritually immature. I don't want to risk saying something wrong, you know, being heretical in the prayer on accident. And really even deeper than that, we know this, that prayer, prayer is like a window into your soul. I mean, prayer takes us to a deep and vulnerable place with the Lord. It's meant to. And just, you know, the truth is a lot of people just don't feel comfortable letting other people in on that, letting people see through that window. We don't want to bear our souls in prayer in front of others. Well, y'all, one of the things, as we read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially John, as we've been doing, something we would expect is for Jesus to teach us how to pray. One of the most fundamental things we need to know, I need to know how to pray, what to ask for, how, what posture to take before God, right? Surely Jesus would teach us that, and he does, very famously, Jesus teaches what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. But something we might not expect as we read through the Gospels is a chance for us to actually listen in on Jesus' own prayers. I mean, how does Jesus speak to the Father? What does Jesus ask for when he prays? What does the window into his soul look like? We might not expect to see that because he's the leader, we're the followers. He teaches, we listen and obey, right? But we don't have to wonder what it's like to see and hear Jesus pray because we see it in the scripture, most especially we see it in John 17. An entire chapter is devoted to it. Jesus, the very last thing he's going to do before he goes to the cross, he's going to allow his disciples to watch him pray and to pray especially for them. And so this prayer, we're going to start to read it today in John chapter 17. This really is one of the mountaintop places in all the Bible because we get to look, in a sense, into the very heart of Jesus. The things he prays, the way he speaks to his own father, 
we get to see it from the front row. And it's so rich, y'all, we're going to take three weeks to, to survey it, okay? We're just going to look at little portions in turn so that we don't rush too quickly through uh, what some people have called the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus, we're going to see this today. Jesus is going to pray for himself and for his relationship with the Father. Then we'll see next week, Jesus prays primarily for his disciples. And then lastly, Jesus is going to pray for the church in all the world, the ministry that will exceed his time on the earth. And so uh, let's dig in on this together. We're going to look at just five verses, but this, y'all, there's never, ever been a prayer like this one. John 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, chapters 13 through 16, these things, and then lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, y'all, all throughout the Gospel of John, if you read on your own, you'll notice this. There's been a, a high amount of attention given to what John calls Jesus' hour. Jesus called it this, the hour, which is a reference to Jesus' suffering and death. Anytime you see that in the Gospel of John, the hour of Jesus, that is the crucifixion. That's what it means. And up until now, throughout the Gospel, it's to- we've been told that Jesus' hour had not yet come, which shows a very clear uh, divine providence as to the plan and purpose of Christ on the earth. He couldn't have died any earlier than what was purposed by the Father. At one point, maybe two different times, the crowds who are angry with Jesus try to take hold of him and seize him and even put him to death, but they can't, John tells us, because his hour had not yet come. And yet now we see this as Jesus begins to pray, Father, the hour has come. Now is the time for Jesus to fulfill the great purpose for which he came. He's about to go to the cross. And so he prays in light of the hour now upon him. He says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when Jesus prays for this glory here in verse 1, he's not praying only for a future glory, which is to say, you know, the cross is about to be really terrible, dark, awful. All the evil of, of sinners is going to be poured out upon him. Yes. But then the resurrection, that's going to be glorious. And that's true. But Jesus actually is praying right here specifically for the glory of his hour. The Son and the Father will be glorified in the cross. That's the prayer in verse 1. The cross is itself going to be something glorious both for Jesus and the Father. And Jesus is going to tell us why as he prays. Verse 2, Jesus gives one of the main expressions of his glory in the cross. Verse 2 says, Even as you, Father, gave him, Jesus, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, there's a lot going on in that one verse. For one, Jesus says, as God's Son, Jesus possesses authority over all humanity. He holds a position and a power more glorious uh, than we can possibly imagine. Everything belongs to Him and is under His feet, as it were. But then the verse takes a strange turn. How does Jesus exercise this great, glorious authority Here in the gospel, he gives himself up to be arrested and bound 
falsely accused and convicted, spit on and mocked and tortured, and crucified as a criminal. That's how the authority is exercised in the moments that follow this prayer. All the while, the so-called Jewish and Roman authorities, the people who think they've got power, they're doing these things to Jesus while Jesus does not fight back, he does not demand his rights, he does not hire a lawyer, he doesn't call down an angelic rescue, although he could have, he doesn't do any of those things. He simply takes upon himself in silence the fullness of the suffering and the shame that were coming his way. And so it's strange, perhaps, for us to say all authority belongs to Jesus, and yet this is the exercise of his authority? This is what he's about to do? Where is the glory in that? Where's the authority on display? It's in what Jesus prays. You see it in verse 2. Look at that same verse again with me. The Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. That, and here's the purpose, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is the glory of the cross. How can such a shameful thing be glorious at the same time? Because the hour of Jesus' suffering is producing salvation for a world of sinners. And it's, it's, it's presented to us in this most incredible way. And you know, we'll... We'll, we'll plumb the depths a little more as we go through John 17. It'll come up again. But Jesus says that the Father gives us to the Son. We are the Father's gift to the Son. And then in turn, the Son gives us eternal life through his suffering and his death on the cross. And so, y'all, if, we, if we're focusing on the word glory today, it comes up over and again. Let's acknowledge that this is a peculiar glory. It's a strange thing. If, if you've grown up in church or around church, you don't think of it as strange, but it is, that a group of people get together every week and stand and sing and smile while looking at a wooden cross on the wall. That's an odd thing to do. If we were somehow transported to ancient Rome right now, they'd all think we were insane because of what the cross represented, what the cross actually is. It's an object of horror. It's an instrument of torture and death. It's where criminals go to die. How in the world could we glory in something so shameful, humiliating, and horrible? It's because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, because of our Savior, the cross is not an object of shame, but of glory because of what he accomplished on it. Through his death, we are able to trust in him and receive eternal life. That's why the Apostle Paul says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His boasting, his greatest glory and ours is in this object of shame and torture. Because that's where our Savior made payment for our sins. That's why we have life in his name. This is the glory that we celebrate week after week. That's why the cross is not a shame to us. We can wear it as a necklace. We can put it on the wall in our bathroom. I don't know where you put the cross in your house, right? It doesn't really matter. If you put it on the wall, it's not shame to you. It's glory, right? Because it's our Savior and his work for us. Now, Jesus says he gives eternal life to us, right? 
do we take that phrase for granted, eternal life? I know I do. And so before we, before we move forward, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says eternal life? If I were to poll the audience here this morning, if I were to say, okay, eternal life is blank, you get to fill in the blank. I'll do it too. We'll write it on a slip of paper, fold it up, put it in a hat. I'm curious to know what kind of answers we might get because we all have a sense of what eternal life is. And I'm sure most of us are right, at least in some form. But I also guess we probably wouldn't give the same answer Jesus gives when he qualifies it in verse 3. Look at what he says in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how he defines it here in prayer. Y'all, when the, when the gospel promises eternal life to those who believe in Jesus, we all know that eternal life right there can't simply mean that we just go on existing somehow. It's not that ambiguous. But I also want to encourage us that what Jesus says here in verse 3, eternal life means more than simply going to heaven when we die. You know, reuniting with loved ones, being pain-free and finally happy all the time. Y'all, heaven is not God's version of Disney World, where everything is suited to our liking, and God has created this wonderful place for us to enjoy as a reward for living a good life. And God just kind of sits back like Walt Disney and, and, you know, smilingly kind of folds his arms and, and enjoys watching us have a good time. That's not how heaven works. That's not what it is. There is a quality, Jesus says, to eternal life that's better than anything God could give us. Jesus says that eternal life is to know the Lord, to have perfect relationship and perfect union with him. And y'all, if that sounds like almost kind of a downer, well, you know, I, I already know the Lord, you know? Is that just, just, just what I have now on forever? Is that what it is? Let, let's, let's consider this. And this is, y'all, if we, if we peel back the layers here, it really, it makes sense, I think. Y'all, every good thing, every blessing, every pleasure, every delight finds its origin in God, really and truly. Your favorite food, the beauty of a sunset, the joy of relationship, laughter, any good thing, God made it. And God made it to be good, and he made it for our enjoyment and our delight. And because God is the source, the origin of every good thing, we should recognize this, that God is not a divine vending machine, a dispenser of those good things, as if he existed only to give us the feeling. No, God is the ultimate good in himself. That's why so much good flows from his heart. He's the ultimate good. So God doesn't just give life to us. God is life. God doesn't just give us love. He is love. And that's why we say that the greatest gift God can possibly give you is the gift of himself. To know him and to be known by him to constantly be drawing on the source of all goodness, the person in which all goodness resides. Y'all, the truest pleasures of heaven will not be the things we get. 
as much as that's how I tend to picture it. The pleasure of heaven, the delight of heaven, will be in knowing God perfectly, intimately, face-to-face, forever. And if that doesn't sound as joyful to you as the things, that's why we're here. We're here by God's grace to be recalibrated. I need it just as much as you do. That God would speak truth into our hearts and the Spirit would make it reside within us. He's the ultimate good, better than anything he can give. The truest pleasure in heaven is going to be the worship of Jesus Christ forever. It will never wear out. It will never get old. It will never be diminished in its power and its beauty. Because Jesus cannot be less than the most glorious person in the universe. And y'all, here's the good news for us right where we sit. This eternal life, this knowing of God Jesus is promising here, it doesn't just begin when we get to heaven. We can, right here and now, be born again, granted eternal life, brought near to God, declared God's beloved children, the very moment we turn to Jesus in faith. We enter in to this blessed relationship in the here and now, not one day future. One day future, it will be gloriously perfect in ways we can't comprehend, but it begins here. We can know him now. Now, y'all, take a step back. Let's take a breath for a second because I think we should be reminded of something. Easy for me to miss, especially I'm I'm up here teaching this, and I'm I'm doing my, my best to teach this, and it's good. It's good and right to teach through John 17. But this scripture, let's remember, is not primarily a teaching. Jesus is not saying these words on a hillside with a great crowd around him, like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not, uh, he doesn't have a classroom setting with his disciples where he's arranged for them to take notes on what he's saying. Jesus is speaking these words while lifting his eyes to heaven in prayer. And so in that sense, what I said earlier, prayer being like a window into the soul, that's what we have right here before us, is if Jesus were opening up his very heart, his very soul to us, Jesus is communicating his deepest heart to the Father. He's not putting on a show. He's not posturing for the sake of those watching. This is who he is at his very deepest level. And so we can be sure that what Jesus is saying not only reflects the depth of his own heart, but the Father's heart as well. And so I want want to say a word here to, to those of us who really struggle to believe that God loves me. And I know there are many of us that no matter what we think or say or how we act outwardly, there's this deep place that's nagging us always that says, God is really cold and distant. Maybe not to everybody, but certainly to me. God is demanding and exacting. He's quick to anger when it comes to my sins and failures. He's short on mercy with me. He's impossible to please. Impossible to please. So many of us, we have that perspective of God. And yet my, my hope for us, my calling to us this morning is that we're, we're entering in to the very heart of Jesus' own prayer here to be recalibrated, to be reformed around the truth. What is Jesus saying from his heart? The Father and the Son are glorified through the cross. And through the cross, Jesus delights 
to give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. And that eternal life consists in us, in you, knowing the Lord fully and freely forever. That's the prayer. And y'all, all of this prayer reflects God's own initiative. You notice nowhere in this prayer does Jesus lay out an action plan for us. There's nothing you and I have to do to provoke this kind of love in the heart of God. I mentioned it at the outset before we prayed and sang that we, we're not climbing a spiritual hill today in hopes of starting our, in our week better or, or somehow compensating for last week, which didn't go so great. And we've got to make our way to God and then we'll, we'll unlock his heart somehow once we've made enough effort or promises or sincere intentions. No. All of this in John 17 is God's doing, God's initiative. Nothing provoked him. He just who he is. He's abounding in grace and mercy and love and kindness. And so, y'all, this, this prayer really is a window into the true heart of God. If you doubt or question his love for you, zero in on the very words of Jesus Christ in prayer. His love for us is more sincere, more eternally wonderful than we'd ever guess. And we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus, part of the prayer is Jesus praying to God on our behalf for us that we would come to really know this love and delight in it and become loving toward, toward one another as a result of it and be unified as a church because we've come to see how much God has loved us by his grace. And so, y'all, the, the, the gospel, which means good news, what we preach hopefully all the time here, the gospel does not say God tolerates us from a distance. He used to be against us entirely, but then Jesus came and died on the cross, and now God, at least, he's at least willing to let me in the doggy door. No. He loves you to the full. And by his choice, by sending his son, you're now able to know him as your father, and you his child. That's good news. That's good news. This is the heart of God. Now look at verse 4, where Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now Jesus is not just talking about his ministry up to that point. When Jesus says, I've completed, I've accomplished the work, the whole of his ministry is is in view here, including the cross. And this is wonderful. So often when the Bible speaks of something supreme that God has done or, or will do in, the, in future days, oftentimes the Bible will speak of it in past tense. In Romans 8, Paul says, we have been glorified. That's something that hasn't happened yet. Speaking of our own future resurrection, but it's as good as done. That's why we speak of it in the past tense. Jesus speaks of accomplishing the work. It's already as good as done. The certainty of Jesus' obedience to the Father, the certainty of his sacrificial love for us, it's already sealed at this point. There's no turning back, and there's no sincere desire to do it. Jesus is not deviating here. He's going straight to the fulfillment of his mission. He has glorified the Father perfectly in this world, and most especially in the accomplishment of the work which occurs on the cross. Now, verse 5, last verse we're going to look at. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now Jesus is turning to future glory. The glory that will come in his resurrection and and then his ascension to the Father. And y'all, this is a prayer only Jesus can ever pray. It's interesting, what we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's a prayer Jesus couldn't actually pray himself. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He had no trespasses. A man with no sin can't pray that prayer. That's our prayer. But this is a prayer we can't pray. Only he can pray. Father, glorify me with you with the glory we had before the world began. Do not pray that. You had no glory before the world began. I didn't either. Only Jesus possesses such a glory. But here's the point, right? The the, the dead and buried Jesus will indeed rise again on the third day, and he will rise in glory, in an imperishable, incorruptible, glorious body. And then he will return to the Father. Forty days later, he will ascend to the Father that they might share in the glory they had before He created the world. Now, y'all, there's a lot that we could say about verse 5. We can certainly speak to the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God. That's very clearly on display right here. But, y'all, I want to draw out one point that's been rattling around in my head all week. I think it's important, and I think it's something that that, um, I tend to neglect. When Jesus became a man... At Christmas, he's born to the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger, right? The scripture tells us in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, in becoming flesh, emptied himself to take on the form of a bondservant. And we, you know, there's a lot of deep theology in all this, but there's, there's a sense in which something of the glory and the splendor of Jesus was being set aside so that he might become as we are so that divine might take on flesh and and humanity, right? Uh, It doesn't mean he ceased being God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For Jesus to become as we are, uh, there was a setting aside of some sense of his glory and his splendor. Well, now as we read this prayer in John 17, what is Jesus asking for? A restoring of the glory that he had in the past, that he had before the world was. Now, it's tempting then, at least for me, to think, okay, what Jesus is praying for, he came down for a specific mission, he took on flesh, he became a human being by necessity, that's just the way it had to be, but now that his earthly body is going to be dead and buried, the sacrifice is going to be made, now then he can go back to the way things used to be. You know, Jesus became human because he had to, but now he gets to leave this ugliness behind, this weakness, this frailty, this darkness behind, and he gets to go back to heaven to be a spirit again. Y'all, that's not what the Bible teaches. The scripture teaches what we might call the permanent humanity of Jesus. That when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he actually rose in a physical human body. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven in that same body. And that the gloriously perfect resurrected body of Jesus still had the marks on his flesh from the nails, 
Remember doubting Thomas who said, unless I see him and touch him, I won't believe. Jesus puts out his hand and says, put your finger in the wound. That was post-resurrection. The scars remain. And that means, y'all, that in heaven right now and forever in heaven, Jesus remains touchable. Jesus remains human, just as he is, of course, divine. The proof of his sacrificial love will always be before us. The scars will always be visible and for us, in a sense, touchable. Now, now why is that important? The glory that Jesus is praying for, return me to heaven, Father, and the glory that we had and shared together before the world was. Jesus is not praying, God, let's get back to the good old days. Back before we ever created this crazy, messed up world. No, he's praying for a unique glory. The glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken on flesh to make purification for our sins. That's why he took on a body. And now he's been raised in a glorious new body, which he possesses forever. And the promise of the scripture is that Jesus, in his resurrection glory, will also raise us from the dead in the same way. We will have glorious new bodies one day. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn among many brethren, the first of the the fruit of resurrection life, but not the last. He will bring many sons and daughters to glory with him. And we, in, in some very mysterious and wonderful sense, we become like him. We will share in his glory as those resurrected by his power. And so, y'all, it's impossible for us to really imagine, really and truly, the experience of heaven, what it's really going to be like. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But here's something I know. And here's something I want us to be sure of. The glory of God in heaven is not going to be some floating, glowing orb that shines happy light upon us and makes us feel good. No, God is not ambiguous to us, not anymore. He has spoken to us in his son, and his son has taken on flesh, and he will always be before us human. Because he, as the man, Jesus Christ, took on the sins of men and women, died and rose again, so that we might share his glory with him forever. This is eternal life, to know him. And so, y'all, the brightest glory of heaven is always going to be transfixed on the Son of God, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to give us eternal life in his name. Jesus does not want to go back to the good old days before there was ever a redemption, a salvation. No. The glory that he enjoys right now with the Father, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and the scars remain for our sake forever. And we will see him face to face one day. Y'all, the the glory of Jesus is not just a thing that we imagine, bright and shining. The glory of Jesus is tied to what he has done for us in his dying on the cross. And so we don't just think of Jesus' glory as something we kind of admire from afar. We're meant to think of him and his glory as something that we get to share in and enjoy forever by faith. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said. And now he affirms it in prayer. Lord, to all that you have given me, I now give them eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know me. There is no greater gift in all the world, and we receive it for free, simply by trusting in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning uh, for me, for my own heart, I pray for all of us in the same way, that, Lord, we would um, just delight ourselves in this prayer, the prayer that Jesus spoke as the cross was right before him, a prayer not of of self-pity, a prayer not to, you know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't hoping things would turn out to his advantage or that this, this plan would somehow work out. No, he, he knew for a fact that, that his glory and yours, Father, would be supreme at the cross and would be seen in the resurrection and would be um, enjoyed forever. And so, Father, I pray this morning that, that as we look into these words of Jesus Christ, that we would see... Um, his glory, not as a distant thing somewhere beyond us, but as, as just as part of who he is to us. He is glorious. You, Father, are glorious. And Lord, your glory is, is seen um, through the cross, not around it, not, not only on the other side of it. But as Jesus laid down his life, as the nails pierced his hands and feet, as the sword entered his side, Lord, as his blood was shed, you were glorified, Father. Because at the cross, you were bringing many sons and daughters to glory. You were saving sinners. And so, Father, I pray that we would would have just a a wonderful... um, and clear sense of what your heart really is. That your greatest glory is in saving sinners and raising the dead and knowing us and allowing us to know you forever. Father, let us not take this wonderful gift for granted. And I pray, Lord, that you would would, uh, bring us together as your church to be a people who, when we think of your glory, Lord, it doesn't scare us away. It doesn't doesn't make us uh, just kind of dreamy-eyed, Lord, but that we see the cross and the empty tomb and and the promises of eternal life and the relationship we've been granted with you, Lord, that we see these things and we, that our joy is made full. And of all people in the world, I pray your church, Lord, would be filled with joy and light and promise and gratitude and humility and love because we have a glorious Savior who has so brought us near to your heart, Father.
Lord, change our hearts. Um, if we are casual, if we are cold, if we have a, a false notion of who you are to us, then Lord, uh, bring us into the truth and the grace of our, of our Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Let us trust him afresh. And Lord, let us uh, bask in and delight in his awesome glory. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.